Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you and to uh, look at this passage together. Um, I wonder this morning what your vision is for your life, Uh, what you just kind of imagine in your mind's eye uh, might happen this coming year or in the coming years. Uh, Maybe it's where you'll live one day. You know, London might be a a bit of your life, but maybe you think, oh, I'd love to go here one day. Uh, Maybe it's the passion for what your children might do. Uh, Maybe you think, oh, I've never got the chance to do this, but whoa, wouldn't it be great if my child could do that? Or my grandchild might be able to do this or that. Um, All of us might have kind of those lurking visions from childhood. Um, I discovered the other day that Harry Kane, the England football captain, and myself are not too dissimilar in age. Now, one of us has quite a good chance of playing at the World Cup this coming year. It's not me, in case you wondered. Okay, he's going to get there. But the eight-year-old me still dreams. I mean, if he's going, isn't it still slightly mathematical possible that they call me up? Uh, Well, not if you'd ever watched me play football, for sure. Um, But, you know, that vision that I have, it kind of lingers beneath. Uh, We're in a series, uh, looking through Matthew's Gospel, of Jesus who builds his church. Jesus is building and gathering his church. And to do that, he's kind of had to unpick a little bit some of the assumptions, some of the kind of visions that the the early disciples, those around him, had. And he's shown over the past few weeks that, yes, he is the fulfillment, the one who we've been waiting for, and the greater Moses who was to come. And we saw that through the feeding of the 5,000. But then quite shockingly, we saw that his kingdom, his church, is going to be opened up to a much wider audience And we saw that through the feeding of the 4,000, the Gentiles, people from outside the people of Israel. We saw that with the kind of case study of the Syrophoenician woman, someone who begins to see who Jesus is, and she's welcomed into his kingdom, his family, his church. Maybe most surprisingly, a couple of weeks ago, we dealt with a group, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who you think would have got it right. They know their Bibles really well. They kind of have been waiting for the Messiah. But Jesus warns his disciples that they are trying a kind of DIY religion. And they see God as up here and themselves down here. And they think if they can keep enough rules and do enough good, that they'll somehow be able to make their way back to God. And Jesus says that that kind of religious thinking is just not right. In fact, in chapter 15, the problem is deeply serious. And at a heart level, we kind of need a heart transplant to sort out the issue of our sin, our rebellion against God. And just covering it over with our DIY religion isn't enough. And last week, all of this teaching culminated in one of the disciples, Peter, making an astonishing declaration. It's just a little earlier than the passage we're going to look at today, but you can see it. If you've got a Bible, it might be helpful to have page 983 open. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. And last Sunday, we saw Peter, when asked, who do you say I am? Page 983, verse 16, he said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That was a massive statement. Peter saying, you're the Messiah. You're this kind of coming king, prophet, priest. You're the one we've been waiting for. 
this incredible moment. And we saw that it's kind of a template for what Christians need to do. Some specific promises for Peter, but actually any of us that declare Jesus the Messiah, that's a great first step forwards. But strangely, verse 20, Jesus, we finished last week with him ordering his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And Tom, in true cliffhanger style, said, you've got to come back next week to find out what that's all about. Uh, well, you're back, so let's have a look and see what's going on. And part of what's going on is that they haven't fully understood what that declaration of the Messiah means. So this morning, we're going to let Jesus again shape our vision and show us what it's going to be like as he builds his church. Let's just pray before we get into our verses for today that Jesus would show us what his church is going to be like. Uh, Lord God, we're thankful that each time we open up your word, you speak to us. And we pray that you might unpick within us some of those things which we might cling to of our visions where they're not in line with yours. Help us to see what Jesus is saying this morning and to grapple with what it means for our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, firstly this morning we're going to see, we've got some slides on the screen. We're going to see, it's hard to see, who knew it was going to be this sunny in November, hey? Uh, but it says a, dis, a necessary but disputed vision. And if you've got page 983 open, uh, I'm going to read from verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the Lord, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life again. Jesus starts now, from this time on, they've got that he's the Messiah, but he's going to unpack for them really what that means. And this little word must comes twice in verse 21. He must go to Jerusalem. He must go there. It is absolutely essential, completely necessary for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. In fact, he would go as far as to say that if he doesn't go to Jerusalem, the whole thing of him building his church just isn't going to work. He must go there. Now, if I was to say something like that, you might think it was strange. At the other morning in our household, something disastrous happened. There was no milk. Yes, you've all been there. No milk. And I must have some cereal in the morning. I really must. That is just essential for me. And I might say, I must go to the shops and get some milk so I can have some cereal. But if I said that by going down to my local supermarket, I was going to suffer many things and be killed, well, your advice to me might be, Matt, just have some toast. I mean, seriously, like you don't have to go. It's not that essential. But Jesus is saying it is crucial that he goes, and we're going to kind of track this through Matthew's gospel, he must go to Jerusalem. Even though he knows what awaits him there, he says he must go. Why? Uh, the hymn writer captures this idea, saying there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. See, part of Jesus' mission was to fix this great problem. DIY religion wouldn't doing it, sticking a band-aid, ignoring it, none of that would do it. The only way was for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. And like the disciples, we're going to see in the coming weeks more of what that means and why that's crucial but he really must go there, and he knows that. But we see Peter, um, he doesn't get it, and you can completely understand why. 
great sounding things, Jesus. You're building this church with a vision for drawing in people from every nation, tribe and tongue. But isn't this a little bit extreme? Surely there must be another way that we could build this kingdom. Surely there's a different way. I mean, you going and dying doesn't fit the plan. In fact, Peter is very strong. Verse 22, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I think Matthew's deliberately showing us Jesus says must twice, and Peter silences that with two nevers. Never, Lord, it's disputed this vision. Peter's massively invested. He's been following Jesus for a long time now. And that this would be the kind of final destination he really doesn't get. And he says, never, Jesus, we, we can't do this. There must be another way. But Jesus is so convinced that this truly is necessary that he rebukes Peter in the strongest possible terms. I mean, it's really shocking. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus is revealing that our vision needs not just to be at a human level, but actually at a God level. We need to see the problem as seriously as we can, and that the solution requires something deep and radical. Jesus' own death and resurrection as a sacrifice for sin. It's going to take the disciples a little while to get their heads around that. And we're going to continue to see in Matthew's Gospel how they wrestle with this idea. A necessary but disputed vision. Secondly, though, this morning, we're going to see that there's a costly vision. Jesus is going to set the pattern, a bit like last week, for every disciple. Have a look down at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples... Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And Jesus is presenting a costly vision here. Now, we maybe miss some of this because we don't maybe get the kind of full understanding of what it means when Jesus is calling them to take up their cross. And if you're anything like me, when you kind of imagine a cross, you can do it just for 10 seconds now in your head. Just picture someone wearing one or um, when, you, when you might see one out and about. I've got a few pictures on the screen. Maybe you thought of something a little like this. Uh, there's a kid's craft at the bottom. There's one in a church building. Someone's got a tattoo. Uh, there's one on a necklace. Uh, we often see crosses like this, don't we? Uh, crosses with no one on them, and they're kind of just a symbol of course, for Christians, it's become a, a symbol, the empty cross and the risen Lord from the empty tomb. But I was trying to get my head around this, and I was helped just reading a little bit around what it would have been like to live at Jesus' time. You see, we think of empty crosses, but actually crosses were real kind of things of terror. And You might be heading into a major city, and the Romans, to kind of showcase the fact that you don't mess around with Rome would have people on crosses as you came through the city, publicly there for you to see. Uh, I mean, it's good that the children are downstairs as we think about this this morning because it is kind of gruesome. But as I was reading, I was thinking, well, that would be everyone, wouldn't it? 
You as a family might need to make a trip into the city, and you might not pass an empty cross. You might pass a cross with someone gasping for breath on it, in a lot of pain, suffering quite deeply. That would be really kind of terrifying. And of course, it was meant to make you fear Rome. Don't mess with us. This is what we do. So it's strange, really strange, really shocking when we think in that terms that Jesus calls to every ordinary disciple. Notice that's not some super disciple. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple, greatest to the least, everyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is the pattern for discipleship. Um, well, this is my first time preaching at St. John's, and I get to do something like this this morning. That's pretty full-on, isn't it? And yet it's good for us to have this vision presented before us, Jesus' vision for what life in his kingdom as part of his church will look like. Denying self, taking up cross, and following him. When I was younger and I would hear a talk like this, when I'd become a Christian, and after I'd been baptized at the age of kind of 17, off at university, I'd often hear um, talks like this, and I'd feel like, do I just need to become a Christian again? This is what it's saying. Like, I'd look at my own life, and I'd wrestle with, do I really give myself wholeheartedly to following Jesus? I mean, this is radical, isn't it? It's essentially saying, I'm removing myself from the driver's seat of the car, and I'm letting Jesus drive. I'm giving my whole life, even to the point of death, to follow Jesus. And I think, do I need to become a Christian again? I feel short of that standard. But actually, I was helped by a friend who said, no, I don't think it's all about becoming a Christian again and again and again. Actually, for us, it might be just reaffirming, if you're a Christian here this morning, yeah, that's the kind of path I want to take. It does sound hard and and risky and dangerous to be with Jesus, But actually, yeah, I want to follow him. You see, the disciples have been following him for a while now. And yet, as they begin to understand what true discipleship looks like, Jesus uses that same phrase again. Follow me. Come with me. See, the path that he's going to go on is the path that we are choosing to go on to. And he gives us a little kind of maths equation Um, It's a bit confusing, isn't it, when you first kind of read through it, I think, in 25 and 26. Let's just glimpse there again. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus is saying, if we run the numbers we see that even if we have absolutely everything in this life, if we gather all the things that we dream of in our visions, do we really add in, factor in our souls? And he would say, if we want to cling on to stuff in this life, we will ultimately lose out. But if we entrust it to him, then we will win. We will receive. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus is really doing something radical, isn't he? It's different 
to the DIY religion that we're so used to encountering, just make myself a little better, try a little harder. Jesus is saying it's not that. You need something radical to happen. It's always really hard, I think, when you kind of come to a passage like this and you think, how do I apply this? Because it just seems so vast. And the danger is that if I give you a couple of illustrations now, that we drift back into DIY religion and we think, yes, if I can tick this box or that box. But then equally, if there are no illustrations, then we're left thinking, how on earth do I deny myself and follow Christ? And I wrestle with this. Uh, let me just tell you on a couple of ways that I've wrestled with it and a couple of ways that I've been helped. Um, I, I was thinking the other day, what does it mean to kind of give wholeheartedly to Christ and yet be a wise, sensible father and husband to provide for my family? Where's that line? How do I do that well? And what does it look like to be a disciple of Christ and speak up for him, and yet to do that in a way that doesn't just offend everyone and, and put them off? I don't want to be doing that all the time, but I also don't want to be doing that never. And, and how do I find that balance? Well, obviously, I'm going to need God's help in that. A couple of years ago, I think it was about 10 years ago actually now, and it stuck with me, um, I had a friend, a single guy, who loved to go skiing, um, always off, uh, going skiing whenever he could. And I remember one time, uh, just being surprised that he was at church during one of the holidays, I thought he would normally be off skiing. We knew each other really, really well, and so in a private moment I said to him, just a bit surprised that you're not off skiing right now. And he said that he had been thinking through his kind of living and for him, he, we had a, friend, a mutual friend who was going off to be a missionary overseas. And he said, I just thought, look in heaven, I'll get lots of time to ski. I, I really think that that's part of, you know, the goodness of God. If it's there, I'll get to do it. And so I've decided that I'll go skiing still occasionally, but I'm going to give some of the money that I would have had and put it in that missionary pot so that we can have another missionary over in the, in the mission field. Or I noticed we're kind of advertising kind of Christmas door knocking and, and kind of taking flyers. And my last church did that. And I was amazed by people. What we did twice a year was we went and knocked on every door, 6,000 in the little village I was in, and invited people to the Christmas service and then in the summer to the big summer fun day that the church put on. And I was amazed. We needed so many people to do that. I mean, it's a lot of homes, especially if you're knocking on the doors. And there was one lady who was very kind of quiet and timid, and I wouldn't have expected to see her name on the sign-up. And she said, look, I go to this particular street because I used to live on this street. I know the people there, and I'm desperate for them to find out about who Jesus is. And so even though it's really scary for me, and I have to kind of talk myself into it all the time, that for her was part of what denying self and taking a risk and following Jesus looked like. And of course, for you and me, we're going to have to wrestle with what it looks like. In our small groups, in our discussions over the dinner table, we're going to need to think that through. But Jesus is calling us here. We, we can't kind of put it aside. He's calling us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, to invest in his kingdom, and by doing so, to save our life, to save our very soul. Well, we've got one more thing to see this morning. We've seen uh, a necessary but disputed kind of vision. We've seen the costly vision that Jesus presents to us. And thirdly and finally, we're going to see oh, an ultimate reality, an ultimate reality available to us. Uh, you notice, I'll flick onto it, uh, this piece of tech, uh, when you go in to see the optician, 
um, something I've done since the age of two. And they get you don't need to read off the chart. I don't know quite why they still do that, what it means, what it tells them. Probably tells them something. If you're an optician, tell me afterwards what it does. Uh, they've got all the other kit that they use. But you still have to do this sometimes. And uh, when I was two years old, apparently, I don't remember, I was two, but when I was two years old, I had to get glasses for the very first time. And supposedly, I believe this is true, both my parents told the story independently, I come back home, and for the first time, I can see patterns in things. I mean, my eyesight was so bad that I was basically just seeing one color. So like, there might be like a rug or something, and I was like, Mommy, our rug's changed. It's like got two colors in it now. Like, just remarkable the difference it made. I mean, you must think, wow, he really has bad eyesight. Uh, that's fair. Uh, remarkable the difference it made. And obviously, from that moment on, changed the way that I would see the world. Just gave me a kind of true vision, a true reality of what was really there. The rug hadn't changed, just my perception of it had changed. And as we get towards the close, Jesus is trying to give us this ultimate reality. This reality that will kind of spur us on to do all the things that we've been thinking about this morning. Uh, let's briefly look at verse 27. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he'll reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some of those who are standing here will not taste death before, the Son of Man, before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And Jesus throws us to that ultimate reality, that final day, a bit like we did in the book of Joel, if you were here for that series. That coming of the day of the Lord, we had that passage read in Thessalonians. You might want to go back and just have a little glimpse at some of the details there. But Jesus is saying, if we are really convinced that there's a final day coming, it'll shape how we live now. A bit like my friend saying, I can invest in now because I've got a kind of great reality coming. I can take a risk now because I know what's banked already in my future. And Jesus says, there really is a day really is a day in time-space history when he will come back. It sounds like DIY religion, doesn't it? Reward each person according to what they've done. I think that means directly what's just gone before, according to what they've decided, what they've done about this reality, whether they've kind of hoarded for themselves their life or given it over to Jesus. And that's a decision that each of us has to make. I'm really aware some of us will still be puzzling through that this morning. We'll continue to go through Matthew's Gospel Continue to see Jesus peel back the layers and see whether you can be convinced that he's worth giving his, your life to. But 28, I think, points us to some evidence that Jesus is going to give us. It's not a complete picture at this point. We have to keep going on the journey. And Jesus says, look, we're going to get to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. A bit of debate as to whether this is referring to directly what's going to come next week. A bit like Tom, I'm going to tell you, you have to come back next week to find out. Um, but whether it's the transfiguration when they get a glimpse of Jesus, I think it could definitely be that. Uh, whether it's the kind of Easter story and they see more of who Jesus is, I think it could be that too. In fact, I kind of think both things are true. Uh, you're going to get more next week and actually we're going to see more as we get towards the end of the gospel. But Jesus is kind of saying, look, there will be evidence Jesus really did die and rise again. The disciples are going to see him in his glory. They're going to see more of these case studies of what it looks like to live for him. And for each of us, we will have to make up our mind. Are we going to follow Jesus down this costly vision, something that was utterly necessary for him? Are we going to be aware of that ultimate reality and invest in that rather than just in things of now? Or are we going to say, no, I'm not convinced? 
I'm not convinced. I'm just going to leave it. Wander away. Try and do my own DIY religion. Try and see where that gets me. Well, as we weigh that up, we need to hear Jesus' words one more time. Let me just read to you. They're in the center. Verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever, anyone that wants to be his disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The call to you and I this morning, wherever we're at, whatever decision we've yet made about Jesus, is will we follow him? It will cost us a lot in this life. But ultimately, Jesus says, it will be completely and utterly worth it. Maybe for you, this will reaffirm your commitment to that this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, you don't call us to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself. We see that Jesus' model is one that his disciples must follow. And Lord, for each of us, that will look complicated and difficult. We will need the help of your spirit. Maybe you've been, even before this week, preparing something in our hearts to nudge or to remind us to live for you in a specific and certain way. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to commit to following you and give us that ultimate vision of what is to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.